Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Pull your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along or fire up your Journey Church International app. Almost everything you see on the screen will be in your handheld device so that you can hold on to it. We're, we've been in a series called Letters from Jesus in the book of Revelation. If you're brand new, welcome. I'm Christian. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are grateful that you are here. We've been studying the book of Revelation because we want to know Jesus more deeply. We stated the first week of this series and every week of this series, Revelation 1 verse 1, which says this. What is the book that we are studying here? In Revelation 1 verse 1, it opens the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants What must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. If you're new with this or maybe have a brand new Bible, underline or circle the word revelation. It is the Greek word apocalypsis. If I were to ask you today, what is the apocalypse, you would say the end of the world. But the definition of the word apocalypsis is not the end of the world. It's a Greek word that means to uncover or to reveal or to disclose. And when it refers to a person, it means that person becomes clearly visible. So we're reading a book that is the apocalypsis, the unveiling, the uncovering, the revealing of who Jesus is to our world and to people who follow him. Anytime this Greek word is used in the New Testament, apocalypsis, It means something or someone who used to be hidden who is now clearly seen. We're studying the book of Revelation so that we might clearly see who Jesus is. We're also studying it because we want to receive the blessing that it promises. In Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near as the time of the end nears. The book of Revelation says by studying it, you will be blessed. So we want the blessing of the book of Revelation. So we're trying to figure out who Jesus is. We're trying to get ourselves ready for when Jesus comes back, and we've been studying letters that Jesus has been writing to churches. Today, we're in letter number four in Revelation chapter two. It's to a church in a city called Thyatira. Before we begin reading the letter, could we just bow our heads quickly, and could you whisper this prayer from your heart to heaven? You don't have to pray it out loud, but would you say the words, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The high priest Eli taught a young boy named Samuel, that when God was speaking, he should pray, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, and then he should open his heart to hear. Today, we aren't reading the words of Christian. We aren't reading the words of journey. We're reading the words of Jesus. So, Jesus, we ask you to speak. We're telling you our hearts are open to listen. Tell us what you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 2, starting in verse 18, says this to the angel... If you're brand new, you might circle that word angel. It means to the minister or the pastor of the church in Thyatira. Right? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet by her teaching. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets... I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious 
and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let me tell you a little bit about Thyatira, this city where this letter was being written. Thyatira is the busiest and was the most traveled of the seven cities mentioned in the book of Revelation. Revelation consists of seven letters written to seven churches. We've studied three. Now we're at Thyatira. Thyatira was the marketplace of Asia Minor. Go to the map, guys, if you would. If we look at this map, you'll see we've talked about Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. We'll work our way to Laodicea. Thyatira was kind of right in the middle of it. Do any of you have a place that you drive to for vacation or for Christmas or Thanksgiving that is like five or six or maybe eight hours, a place where you have to stop at least once to get gas? Because if you're like me and you do, or you're like my family growing up in Southern Ohio, every summer we went to vacation in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we would always stop at the same rest areas, at the same gas stations, at the same restaurants. If you have kind of a filling station on your journey, you understand Thyatira. Anytime anyone was traveling from Pergamum into Asia or from Laodicea into the Aegean Sea, they would stop at Thyatira. It was the rest stop. It was the marketplace along the way. It was a blue-collar city known for its trade workers or what we would call its guilds, its trade unions. When we read documents mentioning Thyatira that are found in archaeology, they all talk about the Baker's Union and the Mason's Union and the Carpentry Union. They were one of the first cities to have unionized labor in all of Asia. And we know that the church at Thyatira was potentially founded by a woman named Lydia. In Acts chapter 16, we meet her. She works for one of these trade unions. She sells cloth in other cities. She and her family become followers of Jesus. They're baptized by Paul. And history thinks maybe they went back to their city and started a Bible study in their home that became a church. It was founded by a woman named Lydia. And now it was being destroyed by a woman known as Jezebel. That wasn't her name, but that's what Jesus called her. We'll meet Jezebel a little later on in this message. And we'll see why Jesus referred to her by that name. But you're not here to learn about Thyatira. Background and history always help a little bit, set things in context. But we are studying the book of Revelation to learn three things. What's revealed about Jesus, what's uncovered in our hearts, what's God want us to know about ourselves spiritually, and what's the blessing to receive? What is this teaching us about Jesus? What's it teaching us about ourselves? And how can we be blessed by applying what we're learning? That's what we're trying to learn. So let's look, number one, at the first one of those questions. What is revealed about Jesus in this letter to the church at Thyatira? Verse 18 says this. Get your pen ready. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, if you've got your pen. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, underline that, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, underline that. We meet today a Jesus whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Those two phrases mean something specific. What does it mean? That Jesus has eyes like blazing fire. It means that Jesus' eyes serve as a refining fire in the evaluation of our lives. It means that as Jesus watches our lives, his eyes, what he sees in our lives can be separated into those things that are very 
spiritually healthy, spiritually worthy, and those things that aren't very spiritually healthy or spiritually worthy. One of the greatest promises in the Bible that gives me comfort is that God sees me, that God knows me, that God watches over my life. And one of the greatest things in Scripture that gives me anxiety is to know that God sees me and that God watches me and that he knows everything I do in my life. There's a little bit of tension in that. One of my favorite promises in the Bible is in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. A prophet says to the king Asa of Israel, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. It's a picture of somebody with a globe who's just kind of scanning it, but instead of seeing places and spaces, they're seeing hearts of people. And it said, Jesus every day sees every heart that's alive on planet earth. And he's doing that to give strength to people who really have a heart for him. But these eyes blaze like fire, like fire refines metal. If you were to test a precious metal by fire, you put a precious metal into fire and everything that is not super valuable precious metal goes away and the thing that is the most valuable, the thing that is the most strong comes out more valuable, comes out stronger. Jesus says, I'm watching your life and one day everything in you that doesn't have much spiritual worth will go away and what comes out will be so valuable and so strong spiritually, but it's like a refiner's fire. Jesus, uh, Paul, the apostle Paul talks about this evaluation of our Christian life in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's talking to Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 who have given their hearts to Jesus but not their lives to Jesus. And Paul said you really have to begin kind of getting with the program spiritually because you don't have very many spiritually valuable things in your life. You're not going to take much of who you are to heaven because you've not allowed Jesus to add much to your life. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, no one can lay any foundation... Other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the firm foundation of our life. But after we become Christians, if anyone builds on this foundation, their salvation using gold or silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work is going to be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though as only one who is escaping through the flames. Paul said there are gonna be people in heaven who appear to have all of this stuff that they've brought with them from earth because they had so much spiritual value in their earthly life and there are gonna be other people who walk around and it looks like they're still smoking because they've added zero spiritual value to their life since they've added Jesus and all they will have made made it through the fire is with their soul because they didn't add to their salvation with any kind of Christianity it's a refining fire it's kind of the good news the bad news and what's becoming the very well-known news of the book of Revelation the good news is this we should all be really encouraged the good news is that we are rewarded for every good deed that we do in Jesus name Mark 9.41 says, if you even give someone a cup of cold water because you're a Christian and you think Jesus would care about somebody, you're going to be rewarded for that cup of cold water. We have a ministry we serve with in Lee Summit called Cold Water. They, they reference this verse. Anything you do for anyone in Jesus' name, Jesus says, I'll reward. I'll watch your life. If you pull up to a four-way stop and everyone gets there at the same time. And you're the guy with the Jesus fish on the back of your bumper. And you think, you know what? I want to have a good testimony. So you just wave everyone through because you want them to think well of Jesus if they see your bumper. Jesus says, I see that. I notate that. I'm going to reward you for that. Everything you do in my name, 
I see. And I'm going to reward you for all of it. That is great news. But there's also some bad news. We learn in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we are accountable to Jesus for every bad deed. Not that they will send us to hell. Sins are forgiven. But in earning spiritual rewards, we are held accountable for every bad deed. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says every Christian, after they pass the judgment of heaven and hell, then goes to stand before Jesus so they can talk about their lives and the spiritual value of their lives. We do this at what's called the judgment seat of Christ. It would take me an entire another sermon to tell you about the judgment seat of Christ. So here's what I've done this week on the Activate podcast. I basically have an entirely different message, and I take almost 25 minutes to teach Christians about the judgment seat of Christ. If you've not downloaded this or if you've not ever listened to this, this week is a week to do that because one day you're going to stand before Jesus, and I want you to be ready, and this will get you ready. I'm going to stand before Jesus. He's going to ask me about these five things, and I can receive rewards or I can have no rewards. I'm going to help you get ready to meet Jesus one day if you will listen to this because we're going to be accountable. Good news, bad news. But here's what's becoming very well-known. Four weeks in a row, here's what we're learning in the book of Revelation. It's becoming very well-known news. Christians are accountable to Jesus for how they live their life. His eyes, like blazing fire, see everything. And his feet are like burnished bronze. You say, what does that mean? It means his judgment is pure. It means that Jesus sees and evaluates everything and he gets it right because he sees and evaluates everything. In Revelation 19, 15, the feet of Jesus are seen in judgment. And it says he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He with his feet stomps out wickedness and evil and impurity. But his judgment is pure and his truth is pure. And we have to trust who Jesus says he wants us to be. And we have to trust how Jesus is going to judge the world on who they have become. Because only he sees and evaluates everything. Several years ago, I was laying in bed watching the news. And as I was watching the news with Danielle, I saw a feature on the news where a businessman who'd been in a Bible study that I led um, was being shown being arrested because he had been communicating with what he thought was a 13-year-old teenage girl online, but it was really a police officer. And he went to connect with her and meet up with her um, to have sex. And he was arrested in a sting along with a lot of other people. But as I'm watching this guy, who I knew well, very well, he had helped me in my student ministry days, um, raise money for our student ministry, and had kind of helped me and, you know, mentoring me along some areas of, of business and asking businesses to help us. As I see him walking away, I'm thinking, there's no way they got this right. And I also knew the police officer who led the task force, because I'd led some Bible studies for the police department. So I called him and said, hey, I just saw this on the news. There's no way... You have the right guy. He said, Christian, what do you mean? I said, no, this guy gave him my history. I said, there's, like, th- there's no way this guy did what you said he's doing. And he said, Christian, it's illegal for me to allow you to see and listen to and look over the surveillance that we've had him under for a really long time. But Christian, if you could see what we saw and if you could hear what we hear and if you could read the communications that we read, you would know we put a very dangerous person away. Do you trust us? And I said, yes. And I think a lot of times we like to look at Jesus and question his judgment. But he's the only one who sees everything. 
And he says, my judgment is pure. And if you saw everything like I see everything, and if you knew how decisions lead to consequences, like I know how decisions will lead to consequences, you would trust that my judgment is pure and you would try to do everything in your life to walk the path that I have called you to. The letter to Thyatira reminds us that Jesus sees everything, that he judges everything. And his judgment is pure so that we should trust it. We also learn, number two, what's uncovered in our hearts. We see what's revealed about Jesus, but what is uncovered in our hearts? Revelation 2.19 begins to tell us about this church, but I think it's about us today as well. Verse 19 says this, I know your deeds, your love. If you have a pen, circle the words, your love. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, and your service, and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but the church at Thyatira is the only one of the seven churches of Revelation to be commended for their love. None of the other churches are called loving. It's not good or bad. It's just a truth. They are the only church that was told how loving they were. In verse 19, they're commended for their love. In the very next verse, they are challenged for how that love has become toleration of the wrong things. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet by her teaching. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. We see a church in Thyatira that I think looks a lot like the church in America. Maybe you don't think so, but I do. The tension between loving people and tolerating sin was dangerous to the church in Thyatira. And it can be dangerous to us. It actually should be a tension to us. Because when you're a church like ours who really loves to see people who don't know Jesus become Christians, you're going to be a church that operates with a lot of patience. When you look at the world who who aren't Christians yet, When you have a friend or a family member who isn't a follower of Jesus yet, as Christians, we should be the most patient people that they know in life. As Christians, we should be the most caring people that they have ever met, regardless of who they are or how they live. As Christians, we should be the most sensitive people in how we talk and what we post and even what we like on social media. We should be the most humble people that they have met in and what we believe and how we believe it. We, because of how gracious Jesus has been to us, should show more grace to the world than any other group of Christians who ever lives. That's, that's how the church should operate towards people who do not know Jesus. But inside the church, when it comes to the truth of Scripture, inside the church with Christians, with people who call themselves followers of Jesus, we have to be more committed to the truth than anyone. We have to be more courageous in saying this is what the Bible says than anyone. We have to be more honest in saying you may have heard this, but let me show you what this says about Christianity. We have to be more trusting when we read something that doesn't agree with how we want to love a friend or a family member or a neighbor. We have to trust that God sees and knows better than we do. And we have to be more obedient than anyone when it comes to the truth of God's word. It is this tension between loving Jesus, loving his truth, and putting Jesus and his truth on the back burner because we want, we want to love others well. It is a tension, but it can become a very dangerous tension. 
I understand why there was so much tension in Thyatira. Remember, Thyatira is one of the ancient cities who's known for their guilds, who's known for their unions. If you work in a union or you have a family member who works in a union or you've worked with unions, you know that unions are brotherhoods with the people that work on them. Unions depend on the strength of the union, not the individual, to really make sure they and their family are provided for. In Thyatira, we read in archaeology that the bakers had a union, that the weavers had a union, that the potters had a union, that the clothiers, like Lydia, had unions. They were dependent upon each other. And we read that every union had a pagan god that they worshipped. So once a week on Friday afternoon, the guys and the gals would get together to have lunch. And basically, it would be a religious festival where they would cook food dedicated to the god of you know, carpentry dedicated to the God of clothing, to the God of the marketplace. They would worship this God and they would all come together and they would eat and they would drink. And because it was Rome, there was all kinds of sexual immorality going on. And they would say, this God is the God who makes our union go. This God is the one taking care of us. Let's all praise this God. And Christians would say, we can't do that. We don't believe that anymore. And it became difficult in that union town. Their options weren't great. They could quit their jobs. They could lose all their friendships if they spoke up week after week after week every Friday at lunchtime. They could confront people and become the annoyance in the crowd. They could just ignore sin and act like it wasn't a big deal or they could go one step too far and they could say, you know what? God doesn't even care about all. You can just worship and do whatever you want. Even my God, the Christian God, doesn't care about that stuff. And in the church at Thyatira, they went too far. Listen, I understand the tension of loving your neighbor in a union town. I grew up in one. I grew up in a little town right outside Chillicothe, Ohio, southern Ohio, that was the deepest blue town in one of the deepest blue counties in a state that was usually pretty blue. That's why I met Bill Clinton when I was in elementary school because all the presidents came to our town to talk about what they did. And everyone voted Democrat. Everyone voted Democrat. Until I was at the age of 18, I didn't know there was a single Christian who would ever vote Republican. Tight towns, when you love your neighbors... You vote Democrat. It's just the way it was. We, were, we had kind of a legacy family in our school. Like if you had this last name, you were going to go serve in the government in Columbus. It just, everyone with that name, like three generations, they were the governors of Ohio from our town. It's just the way, if you love your neighbor, if you wanted them to be taken care of, it was just the way you voted. Then I got a football scholarship to play football at Liberty University. Their chancellor was a guy by the name of Jerry Falwell. Perhaps you've heard of him. Um, he had met a few Republicans who were Christians. Um, if, and if you heard of the organization, he started a moral majority. I go to Lynchburg, Virginia for four years. I'm told if you love Jesus and if you, and if you love Christians and if you love Christianity, you have to vote Republican. And if you don't vote Republican, you don't, e you don't even love your neighbor. And for four years in college, I never even knew a Christian who didn't vote Republican. And I thought, my gosh, are, are we being asked to always shape our values based on our neighbors or is there something deeper? So I was in my 20s before I realized that your values are shaped by Jesus. Your values are shaped by his truth. And only once you really know Jesus and know his truth can you live beside a union worker and a preacher, love them both equally, and still honor God with the way you live and the, and the way you teach the things you believe. In Thyatira, they got it wrong. In Thyatira, according to Revelation 2, love for people became more important than love for Jesus became more important than love for Jesus' truth. And toleration of sin turned into teaching. The sin was no big deal to God. Live however you want. God doesn't. You can follow God. 
and live however you want. Nobody cares. God said that Jezebel who's teaching that is going to kill this church. Say, who's Jezebel? Jezebel was the wife of the most wicked king who ever served in Israel. His name was Ahab. Here's why Ahab was wicked, because he married Jezebel. We're told that Ahab's wickedness, the most wicked thing he ever did was marry her because she was from a different country, modern-day Lebanon. And she came in and told the Israelites, you can worship God however you want to. You actually need to worship the Israelite God and the God of Lebanon. Tyre and Sidon is what it was called at the time. Um, Basically, here's what God says, but here's what I say. And she led Israel so far astray that God wiped them off the face of the earth. I've been to Israel now seven times. If you go to Israel and you ask people what tribe they are a part of, the 10 northern tribes that were scattered under Assyrian persecution, people don't even, they aren't even able to trace their tribal roots back to an Old Testament tribe. God got rid of them because Jezebel came in and said, you can worship, here's what God says, but here's what I say, and you can do things different. God said, no, that's not how you follow me. That's what was happening in Thyatira. And here's what we need to understand spiritually. There's a difference between being spiritually disobedient and being in spiritual disagreement. I mean, every Christian that I know lives in spiritual disobedience or struggles with things that make them spiritually disobedient. Everyone that I know. I don't know a single Christian who walks with God who would say, I haven't sinned in a year. I've not been spiritually disobedient one time in the last 365 days. I know two or three people like that. I don't believe them um, when they say it because I know them well enough to think you're a liar. Um, So that's one thing that you've been spiritually disobedient in. I don't know one Christian that doesn't struggle with some type of sin. Christians can struggle with sin. Christians will struggle with sin. Christians will be spiritually disobedient. But 1 John 1, 9 says when we sin, we go tell God, sorry, we ask him to forgive us and we try not to sin again. We don't say God doesn't care because he just, as a Christian, he just accepts me the way that I am. That's spiritual disagreement. That's saying God says this, but I say this, and I'm going to go with my way. And spiritual disagreement is spiritual division, and ultimately it's a division of love. It's saying, I'm going to leave Kansas City, and I'm going to walk to California, and I'm going to get there by going towards New York. You're you're not going to get to California going through New York unless you take the really, 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 really long way around. And there are a lot of Christians who say, oh, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to get to Jesus by walking towards sin. If you ever make it to Jesus, it's going to take you way longer than it should. It's a division of love. And it's interesting because the Apostle Paul pictures Christianity as as a marriage. Let me give you this picture for a minute. Throw that verse on the screen, guys, if you would. Paul says, when I see someone who's become a Christian, I see them as married to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul says, when you become a Christian, it's like you are getting engaged to Jesus, and one day in eternity, you will marry him. Paul says, this is, what, this is the best picture of Christianity. You are engaged to Jesus, and one day in heaven, you are go- you're going to be presented to him, and you're going to be married to him. Now, let me show you the picture of how spiritual disagreement leads to a division of love. How many of you in the room have children? Raise your hands quick. You have children. Here's the question. If you have a child who's engaged and a week before the wedding, you see their fiance out on a date with somebody else, would you tell them? Say, Christian, if I, man, if I told him, it would really hurt their feelings. You're right. 
But would that re- is that relationship going to end well? Say, Christian, you know how much money we would lose if, we would ca- if I would tell them we would cancel the wedding? Do you know how much heartache I would cause in the life of people? Yeah, but would you let someone you care about deeply marry someone that you knew did not care about them deeply? If you could see where it was headed, would you let your kids go ahead and get married and say, you know what? If my future son-in-law just wants to love a lot of women, my daughter ain't that blonde, you know what? Everybody needs to do what they need to do. If my future daughter-in-law, you know, if she likes my son and that guy who's six inches taller and 30 pounds heavier and looks like he lifts every night, you know what? Maybe she needs to have a strong guy who can fix the house and my you know, son who will vacuum the car. But I mean, and I, like, I don't know. I, I don't know what your situation is. Here's... Here's the reality. And I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. And I shouldn't have said that, all of that. Here's the reality. None of us is going to let somebody we care deeply about walk into a marriage that has a divided love. I'm not going to do it. Why would we care more about our children's marriage to a future spouse than Jesus? Why would we care more about a friend? If you, if you have a friend, good friend, and you see their spouse out with somebody who's not their husband or wife. Do you say nothing? See, that's the picture of the church in Thyatira. Christians who are married to Jesus having all these spiritual affairs and the preacher gets up and says, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Just love, just love everyone. Satan took love and he corrupted it into tolerance and Jesus said, that church is not going to last. You see, what we learn in this letter is that the inconvenience of interruption. The inconvenience of interruption in life, in relationships, of the wedding, of the wedding party, of the, of the deposit you're going to lose. The inconvenience of interruption is better than an eternity of destruction when we see someone who says, I want to be married to Jesus, but also have affairs with everything else. The inconvenience of interruption is better than an eternity of destruction. And here's the hard truth. Here's why this message is not only hard to preach. It's why this message is hard to hear. It's why this message is hard to go out and tell people about. It's why this message is sometimes hard to live. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the hard truth of these facts. Jesus told the church in Thyatira that it's, it's a burden to be a church of truth in a culture where churches are drifting from the truth. Jesus says, I know this is hard. He actually said, this is so hard, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. This is hard enough. Just be a church of truth You don't have to do anything else because, boy, that's going to take all of your energy. Look at verses 24 and 25 when he says this. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who don't hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Here's a little uh, theology tip on that. Satan's deep secrets. Here's what was being taught. If you want to be able to identify with people in sin, you have to go do everything they do. So they were telling the people, go do everything everyone else does because then you'll have a platform to say, But this is what Jesus means to me. That's the deep secrets of Satan. Live the exact same way culture does. Then people will believe that, you know, they can trust you in what you have to say about Jesus. God said, those of you who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'm not going to impose any other burden on you except just hang on to what you have until I come. Jesus said, if you would just keep living by the truth and telling the truth, that's going to be hard enough in this day and age. Just hang on. Until I come back. Because when I come back, I'm bringing my reward. And what is the reward? What is the blessing we can receive? It's in Revelation 2, 26 through 29. It says, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I'm going to give him authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter. 
will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Two phrases that are both pretty important. Rule with an iron scepter. Here's what we're learning in Revelation chapter 2. Christians are going to move from a posture of weakness to a posture of strength as we follow Jesus. Initially, when you embrace truth and you begin to tell truth to Christians in your midst, it's going to, be, it's going to make you feel emotionally weak. It's going, to, it's going to make you feel relationally weak. It might even make you feel spiritually weak. But one day, all of that weakness is going to turn to strength. Jesus said, they thought when I came, I would overthrow Rome. And because I didn't have that strength, because I came in weakness, and I, and I sacrificed myself, and I died on a cross, they said, oh, he doesn't have any power at all. But weakness, when we sacrifice for the burden of truth, weakness becomes our greatest strength, and we turn it upside down. And when I return, I will return with all authority. They'll know how strong I am. He said, and then you'll get the morning star. You'll get the morning star. Christians who will follow Jesus' will for their lives will get Jesus. And ultimately, that's why we're following his will for our life. In Revelation 1.1, Jesus says, this is the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. This is me telling you more of who I am. In the very last chapter of Revelation, Revelation 22.16, Jesus says, here's who I am. I, Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright morning star. Jesus says, if you will hold on to me and you will hold on to my truth, you're going to get to the end of the finish line. You're going to find me. You're not going to think you headed west and end up on the east coast. You're not going to think you've headed east and end up on the west coast. If you walk towards me, you're going to get to your destination and I am going to be there. See, in Thyatira 2,000 years ago, there was tension between loving Jesus and teaching that sin was no big deal to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, if you choose to tolerate sin and change truth because your values start with loving people instead of loving me and loving my truth, he said, you're going to miss me and your church is going to die. He said in Revelation 2, he said, her children will be dead. He's not talking about physical children. Spiritually, he's saying any church that teaches that God doesn't care about sin. Those churches will die. They'll go away. But the ones who, to the outside, will be patient, will be caring, will be sensitive, will be really humble, will show lots of grace. And at the same time, as people say, okay, what does it mean to to follow Jesus? People who will be committed to the truth, courageous with the truth. People who will trust the truth and be honest and obey it. Man, that combination of a church, well, that will change the world. And today at Journey, we face this tension because seven years ago, we said we want both. We want to reach people who don't know Jesus, and we want to teach people who are following him. So we can be willing to live in the tension, but we have to be willing to live in the truth. Truth towards Jesus, love towards people who don't know him, and pray that God will help those paths continue to come together. Would you pray with me as we begin to...